1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Jennifer Evans about her book titled Men's Sexual Health in Early Modern England, published by Amsterdam University Press in 2023, that asks the very straightforward to ask question of how did men cope with sexual health issues in early modern England? The answer is obviously not nearly as straightforward as asking that question, and that's what makes it so interesting. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. We're very glad to have you. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Yeah, so I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Hertfordshire, and I co-lead the BA undergraduate history programme there. The book is a culmination of my postdoctoral project, which I began a very long time ago in 2013, and it really came out of my PhD project, which was on the relationship between infertility and sexual pleasure. It looked at how aphrodisiacs were thought to work in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, And as part of that project, I realised there's a lot of historical work on women's reproductive health in the past. And in fact, that's what I'm working on now myself. Um, But this made it apparent to me that there was far less about men's reproductive and sexual health in this era. Alison Montgomery had done a really excellent PhD on masculinity and the male experience in England and Scotland. But beyond that, there wasn't much about how medical writers wrote about these conditions or how men really responded to um, a broad category of of health problems that I've kind of called urinary issues. So there's a lot of scholarship on impotence and not much else. So I thought, there's a gap, um, and I am the person to fill it.
1: Wonderful. Um, Thank you for taking us through that gap, or kind of outlining it, I suppose, uh, so that now we can ask you to help us answer it. Um, Before we kind of get into the details, though, of that answer, can we talk a bit about, obviously, the title mentions a time period, early modern Mm. England, but that that can mean a lot of different things and there's a lot going on at this point in time so can you tell us more about the time period that the book covers and how you decided this Yes,
0: so the book covers the 17th and early 18th centuries. There are a few references to 16th century works that are reproduced in the 17th century. And really it's looking up until the point of about 1740. Um, And in part that's because throughout the late 17th and particularly in the early 18th century, the way the body's conceptualized is starting to shift. There are challenges to the dominant Hippocratic, Galenic humoral model of the body. Um, that does still frame most of the discussion, but when you hit 1740, you start to see new ideas about nervous medicine really shifting the discourse. And so it's it's a good cutoff point. There's a there's a real shift at that kind of moment. So it, it makes a, a natural stopping point. And the era is dictated as well by the the source material. So from the mid 16th century, there's a flourishing of printed medical materials about the body produced in Europe. In the 17th century, there's then further disruption in England to the regulation of print print trade caused by the civil wars. Um, And so you get this real proliferation of works on medical themes. And some of those are really expensive books. Um, Others are much cheaper Um, palm-sized prints. And what you also start to see in the 17th century that Mary Fussell has identified is a circulation of medical texts on a second-hand market, making them much more widely available. And what I'm really interested in is that kind of wider reading populace. I wanted to get a sense of um, how people responded to these conditions. And to do that, you need to be looking at texts that speak to a slightly wider audience. Um, So that kind of dictated the time period that's covered.
1: Mm. Yeah, that makes quite a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's always interesting when sort of we're guided by our sources in that kind of way. So could you tell us a bit more about the sources um, that you focus on in the book, given kind of this, uh, the text you've just mentioned, and tell us a little bit about kind of what's what's cool about them? What's interesting about these sources? What do they allow us to understand that maybe we couldn't without them?
0: So predominantly, the book focuses on medical texts, so those written by surgeons, and at, at by physicians rather, and surgical texts, the ones written by surgeons. And I focused on those written in English or translated into English. And medical texts uh, in Europe at this time can be produced in Latin and the vernacular languages of Europe. So there's a lot of translation and kind of cross readership across Europe but I really wanted to stick with those that were accessible to a broader readership. And so that makes English the better option rather than Latin. And I was interested in the descriptions of diseases and illness that are presented in those texts. But also in the 17th century, they increasingly include case notes or narratives about patients, observations of of what they've been doing. And Again, those observations are sometimes not the medical practitioner's own. They might have been taken from another Latin or European work, so they're not restricted to English cases. But authors always thought they were useful for English audiences Um, and they take materials from other books that they also think will be useful. And I find it quite interesting that some of them even kind of beg their reader to um, accept the knowledge and stories that are presented, even though they're, they're the product of a foreign country, as they term it. And so the inclusion of these kinds of materials really tells us something about how medical and surgical writers want to present themselves. They pick and choose which cases to include, the ones that make them look good. That tends to be what they're going for or that serve a particular kind of purpose for them. Um, and it's been argued that these kind of texts are really represent an important shift in the medical marketplace, because they allow practitioners to advertise themselves in a way that, that they hadn't been able to do before. And so I think reading those um, descriptions of, of illnesses alongside the observations that they include, tell us about how physicians and surgeons are trying to shape the responses of their readers to certain kinds of conditions. Um, And it also fascinatingly shows us their frustrations with these men, how they try and attempt to encourage them to be good patients and to act in appropriate ways. And so you get lots of interesting things that come out of that. Um, They are quite interesting, because genitourinary conditions beyond venereal disease and bladder stones can be quite rare. So things like testicular cancers, um, tumours and swellings, phimosis, they're not things that people are treating particularly frequently. But when you read these texts, the writers create this kind of cultural spectra of, of concern about these problems. Readers are warned that uh, urinary conditions can strip the body of its manliness, they will make you impotent and infertile and incontinent and they're terrible. And so you start to see how they shape concerns about particular disorders, even if they're not particularly prevalent. And you also see differences between the medical and surgical texts. So one of the things that I've found quite fascinating is surgical texts show us Um, a much clearer focus on male fertility rather than just impotence. So because they're performing herniotomies and uh, bladder stone surgery, lithotomies, they are um, being quite invasive in, in a particularly sensitive area. And they include observations that tell us, I've done this surgery really well and the man retained his fertility. Look, he went off and had lots more children afterwards. And so you start to see these kind of threads of what they're interested in. And then alongside those texts, I've also used household recipe collections, so manuscript collections of remedies, and those have been widely studied by historians. They reveal a lot to us about social and personal networks of medical knowledge and experimentation with medical knowledge. And in this project, they Help us um, see what conditions people are attempting to treat at home, but they also show what illnesses it might be okay to talk about. So you sometimes find notations of men's names um, attached to particular remedies. So you can see um, where it's okay to talk about some of these conditions and share remedies for them. Um, and you can see again what might be prevalent in the population. There's a lot of Bladderstone remedies, there's a lot of venereal disease remedies, and then there's um quite a few for swollen testicles, but there's far fewer for things like phimosis or other more complex
1: disorders. Thank you for taking us through those sources and kind of the things that they're saying and what that what we can kind of glean and understand from that, you know, particularly things like this isn't actually that common, but it shows up a lot in the text, or kind of what are people doing in terms of medical practitioners versus home that, I think it's perhaps easy to go, oh, that's just a medical textbook. That's not that interesting. But it's like, no, wait, hang on. There's all sorts of things that we can figure out from this. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, I suppose, more about some of the points you raised, um, particularly the idea of kind of fertility um, and health, not just being about impotence. You, I think, very helpfully organized the book in a lot of ways around kind of the life cycle. You know, what are the concerns around um being a small child, being an older child, an adolescent, middle-aged, older, et cetera, to kind of group together what the different concerns are. So if we follow that same structure, can you tell us what the thinking was, um, what the conceptions were around this area of health if the patient were sort of adolescent men or younger boys going through puberty, um, to what extent was this kind of a particular time of concern? Or was it just sort of the same as earlier childhood or infancy? What, what's going on if we look at this part of the life cycle?
0: So it's it's one of the, the fascinating things about these books is that we can see men at different points in the life cycle. And the medical texts offer some similarities in how they talk about infancy, childhood, and puberty. Um, so it's agreed, for example, that children's bodies are very prone to hernias, particularly young children. They're crying and defecating all the time, and that means they strain their insides. But it's agreed that children's bodies in the humoral model are hot and moist, and so conditions like hernias are easily cured. And again, um, children are thought to be very prone to suffering from kidney and bladder stones, but those are um, dealt with more naturally and more easily than men in adulthood. And finally, children's bodies are also thought to be prone to incontinence that would resolve itself in most cases. And so there's a kind of set of conditions that are thought to affect young boys. What I found more fascinating was that there's evidence in medical texts that the bodies of young infants um, and young boys are being monitored for the signs of their developing physical manliness. So both medical and surgical texts suggest that urinary conditions are dangerous and problematic because they might disrupt that development of the body. So right from birth, midwifery guides caution that the navel string, or what we would call the umbilical cord, shouldn't be cut too short because that leaves men with a smaller penis when they grow up. And young boys whose bodies develop in unusual ways are commented on, so um Richard Wilkes, who's a Staffordshire physician, includes in his diary the story of a young boy at Handley Green, who he says, quote, "Um, his scrotum lay before his penis. And he's interested in how that body will develop into a kind of virile adult male. And then as boys... um, develop into childhood there's concern about hernias and the treatment of hernias disrupting their development and so you see lots of discussions in medical texts about rash hernia treatments particularly surgeries that might result in the removal of testicles um, and cause problems because then those boys won't be uh, fertile and virile when they're older But beyond that, medical writers in some senses are quite ambivalent about the bodies of young boys, particularly in their observations because they don't always follow young boys into adulthood. They treat them when they're young and then they don't see them again, so they can't comment on that adult body once it's developed. And so what you tend to see is that it's as boys approach adolescence and youth, um, which for early modern people can stretch all the way up to 21 so it goes a bit further than we might think about naturally when we're talking about puberty today, that you get this real concern and intense um, scrutiny of the of the male body and its conditions. So at that point, as boys are developing their virility, that's when these conditions become worrying. Um, and. It's interesting because this is also the time at which boys are expected to start engaging in exercises that might strengthen the body um, and make them more manly. And one of those is horse riding. So boys are encouraged to take up horse riding. But horse riding is particularly dangerous because it can cause crush injuries for the testicles. And so there's this kind of conflict going on there. And then again, hernias become very problematic as boys start to engage in sexual activity. Um, one of my favourite quotes in the book is a, a really long observation of a young bride who who starts shouting about the body of her young husband on their wedding night because she finds he has a truss and has a hernia. So she's terribly worried that he's going to be um uh, infertile and impotent and not able to to kind of satisfy what she wants by giving her children. Um, so the risks are the same across childhood and puberty, but it becomes more intense and more pressing as boys move into youth um, and that moment where they might start thinking about marriage and um, needing an
1: adult body. Hmm. Speaking of adult bodies, um, what sorts of things were considered normal versus problematic given as you said kind of these tensions between the many things it takes to kind of be a man you talk about leaks in the book which of these were normal versus needing some sort of medical intervention and did these change over the life cycle Yeah, so um,
0: incontinence and leaks are expected for children's bodies, um, urinary leaks in particular. But the manly adult body is supposed to be much more dry and contained. And this both feeds into and is fed by notions of self-restraint and self-management that are central to particularly 18th century notions of masculinity and what it means to be a man. So a young boy's incontinence might not be problematic, but that of an adolescent boy suddenly becomes uh, a negative issue because he should be starting to demonstrate self-control and self-restraint. And we see this play out in observations. So Michael Etmuller, his text has, a line that says, in children it's overcome by nature before the 25th year of age, or else it accompanies them to the grave. And so you can see they've got until they're about 25 to master continents. And after that, it's seen as a, an Irreparable problem. Um, And you see it in uh, other cases as well. So the royal physician Sir Hans Sloan treats a youth named John Plowden for incontinence. Um, And Lisa Smith, who's a fantastic historian, has examined that case in detail and shown how. The discussions around that case emphasise Plowden's lack of Um, self-control. It's a medical issue, but it's tied to his ability to regulate himself. And so leaks can be problematic in that kind of way. Um, But it's not just leaks with urine that are problematic. There are other issues as well. Um, So genitourinary conditions can lead to nocturnal emissions, um, what we would now call kind of wet dreams or the release of... Seed or seminal matter without sensation. And again, they're interpreted in slightly different ways depending on the cause. So, a lot of times, those sorts of issues are related to venereal disease. And venereal disease um, is problematic. Um, It causes what medical writers describe as laxity in the body or over hasty ejaculation john martin a surgeon claims that it results in men letting their seeds slip away from them even just through thinking of enjoying a woman and so that's damaging that self-restraint and control but it's doing so through uh, a disorder that is stigmatized and shameful and is the result of poor self-regulation in the first place whereas in older men those same kinds of leaks um, the loss of seed is thought to be a result of the aging body the older body produces weaker colder seed and has weak weaker retentive faculties so it can't hold things as well and so in older men you don't get that same moralizing all the time unless it's clearly the result of a venereal disease and um, they can explain their leaks without being kind of shamed for venereal disease in some senses and in part That's connected to the fact that older men's bodies are thought to become leaky more broadly. Um, Aging men are sometimes described as entering a a second childhood, um, which reflects that kind of sense of incontinence might come back. And one of the things I found really fascinating while researching this book that I never thought I would spend time considering is the way in which older men's bodies are liable to fistulas. They undergo treatments and surgeries for hernias and bladder stones and they're often left with fistulas that leak urine Um, and those fistulas are just plugged with a piece of fabric and that's how you manage the flow of urine and obviously this is problematic it makes their bodies offensive to some people they're smelly they're not nice to be around but there's a difference in how surgeons and men themselves see this so men complain of being left with these fistulas, they want help to resolve them. And surgeons like Richard Wiseman turn around and say, well, why are they maundering? Why are they complaining? They have been cured of their condition, they should just be happy that we've cured them. And so there's this distinction between medical writers who seem to think it's okay for older men's bodies to be leaky, and patients that clearly Want to restrain those flows and want to to restrict them and and have a, a complete body that they can have control over.
1: So I'd like to pick up on that, right? That idea of kind of how the patients feel about this. Um, and you mentioned earlier the idea of shame. One thing that I think we think of a lot, um, in early modern and honestly even after that, um, is ideas of this these sorts of complaints being particularly sensitive, being particularly prone to shame and concerns about privacy. But we often think about that in terms of women's health, um, gynecological issues, for example, and sort of who's allowed to look at what and help with what. What about men for this sort of thing? Were there similar kind of prohibitions or concerns about modesty for men seeking medical attention for these sorts of issues that women had?
0: Yeah I think so and that was one of the things that I was really fascinated by with this project as well is that so many historical discussions have focused on women's experiences of health um, and how they're shaped by modesty so how medical men negotiated access to the female body how female patients respond to the medical gaze and the medical touch and um Monica Green and others have shown that modesty shaped medical interactions, but was never a barrier to seeking medical care. And I think if you're looking for gendered interactions with male patients, the same thing can start to be seen. Um, Obviously, it's a lot less common because most medical practitioners are male. So you're talking about men seeking help from men. But modesty is there. So um, you do have men who talk to female healers who get help in the home from women as well. But that's not always easily done. And there's there's barriers that have to be overcome. And again, they shift with the life cycle. So female healers might be called for a whole range of things for young bodies, including surgical interventions. So there's a case where um, Sir Gilbert Gerard writes to Lady Joan Barrington in 1631, on behalf of a poor man who's son has a a swelling in his um, scrotum and Gerard writes to her because his wife remembered that Lady Barrington had cured another child of the disease before. So her reputation has reached this poor man. He's made a journey specifically to ask for her help and so you can see in younger patients women have quite free ready access to the body but then in other cases that modesty shifts um, and changes a little bit. So you might have more restricted discussions between adult men and women. But again, it's a barrier and it's not insurmountable. So um, the polymath Samuel Hartlib suffers really badly with kidney and bladder stones. And he gets remedies from Lady Ranley and a whole host of other um, correspondents who include women of various sorts. So we're all offering him advice. And the Naval Administrator Samuel Pepys goes to a party where he asks um both men and women for advice about his and his wife's inability to conceive, and so there are these kind of open discussions between men and women about some of these conditions, so modesty's there, but it's it's informing rather than restricting what people are doing
1: that that's a helpful um sort of way of conceptualizing it because it it's not, not there, but it's maybe not there as kind of totally as we might assume, yeah. Thinking then about shame, um, is there sort of a similar thing here? There's obviously you've mentioned shame a few times, so it's not not there. But are some of these sorts of medical issues considered more shameful than others? Um, Why might some kind of be in the like, oh, no, that one, that one I really cannot talk about versus this one being like, actually, you know what? Maybe I can ask for help.
0: Yeah, it's it's, one of the interesting things is in the medical text, the language of shame is used a lot. And I think it's used somewhat interchangeably with embarrassment. Um, so shame and embarrassment do appear often in these descriptions of male patients. But one of the things that I think is going on is that medical writers complain a lot that men are too embarrassed or too ashamed to seek help for certain conditions. But when they make those complaints, they often point out that the man has already spoken to a friend or a family member or another doctor, often an irregular doctor, an unregulated healer, to get help. So I don't think men are always as embarrassed as medical writers want people to think they are. Um, They construct shame and embarrassment and stigma around these diseases as a tool to help men come to see them and to seek their help. Um, But having said that, there are certain conditions that are clearly shameful. Venereal disease has a clear stigma attached to it throughout this era. It shows um, weakness in terms of your moral standing. It's sexual indulgence. It's related to illicit sexuality. So it is problematic. And hernias are often described as being hidden Lots of men apparently hide their hernias, but it's not made clear in the medical text why. There's no discussion about why they're embarrassing, but they are clearly expected to be embarrassing. Um, And that's perhaps, again, connected to these ideas that hernias disrupt sexual performance and and cause infertility. And it's really uh, impotence and infertility that are in a broad cultural context, both in medical literature and beyond, discussed as kind of... Uh, a source of ridicule. So you have a a text published in 1675 called Fumbler's Hall, which derides all these supposedly um, made up impotent male characters, and it gives them fantastic names like Doolittle and Fainwood. Um, And then it lists the complaints and grievances of their wives who are unsatisfied with their with their husband's performance. And you see ballads, um, the sorrowful bride, for example, jeers at a 21 year old husband who can't take his wife's virginity despite her best efforts to rouse him. So, culturally, there are certain things that are laughed at and are thought to be problematic. But other conditions are less embarrassing. Bladder and kidney stones are quite frequently spoken about. Um, there are examples of men keeping the stones that they pass or have removed and showing them to people. Um, so clearly there's less stigma attached to that And I wonder if that's because of the prevalence of it as a condition um, and because it's not caused by any illicit behaviours, but also it doesn't have many visible external symptoms. It's excruciatingly painful and some men are limited in their mobility by it, but it's not visible on the body in the same way. And so partly what shapes shame and embarrassment is what condition you've got. But then I also think it's tied to who you're talking to. So one medical text um, talking about hernias suggests that um, men keep them hidden, but a near friend likely knows about the condition. And again, recipe books suggest to us that certain types of disorder are discussed and remedies are shared for them. And people are talking about who's been treated and who's been cured. So there's, there's layers to that shame and embarrassment. And I think one really interesting case is a man who seeks help from a medical practitioner. And it turns out that he'd gone to his friend to help him with his phimosis, um, which is a a tightening of the foreskin that causes um, problems during an erection. And the friend had told him just to have lots of sex. And so that's what he had been doing up until that point. And that's something you think might be bound by modesty or shame, but they were clearly talking about it quite openly. So I think it's a combination of um, who you're talking to, what condition you have, and perhaps your status and reputation that affect how far you feel ashamed of something.
1: Hmm. Interesting to understand those layers. Can you tell us a bit more about the medical practitioners encouraging men to seek out um, information and advice despite potentially concerns about shame? How were they trying to encourage men and did it work? So it's hard to know whether any of their tactics worked um,
0: because I don't have a lot of access to men reading the books, but we can certainly see that they're trying different things. So medical writers firstly emphasize the risks that those conditions pose to the fertility and potency of the body, um, that kind of specter of of concern that they're creating, that these are problematic things, you should be seeking help for them. And secondly, surgical texts emphasize that unskilled healers are going to do more damage. Um, They might remove your testicles unnecessarily. They might cut into something that limits your potency. And so they're really encouraging people to seek the right kind of healer, the skillful healer, which is, of course, whoever happens to be writing the book. Um, And then finally, um, they talk about... Um, patients in certain ways. So they talk about patients as being negligent. There's lots of stories of patients who leave their condition for too long, um, and it exacerbates and gets worse. But again, when you read those cases, often they haven't just left it, they are taking a treatment at home, or they've seen someone else. But they frame this as a a form of negligence of the body, which um, shouldn't be shouldn't be the way you should respond you should be seeking to to cure your body and then they also offer um, their ability to be discreet Um, and patient anonymity is not a given in the early modern period we expect it now but for early modern patients it's not something they would necessarily be expecting to have and kevin sienna has done a lot of work on how venereologists are using anonymity in this era to um, encourage people to come forward for treatment but when you look Beyond just venereal disease, you can see it being used elsewhere as well. So in patient observations, you often have the use of anonymity, for a range of different conditions. Alexander Monroe, for example, claims that the unwillingness people have to let it be known that they labor under the diseases of the parts that I've treated of made me relate the histories of particular patients without names, dates or witnesses so that the persons cannot be known except by those that are already in on the secret, which again tells us that secrecy doesn't exclude everyone from knowing your condition. But I think this is quite interesting because the way observations are formulated at this time Anonymity can be used in a whole range of different conditions. It's not limited to genitourinary patients, but I think it is deployed strategically when they're writing about these men. I think they're aware that they've made um, the suggestions that these things will cause embarrassing symptoms, impotence, infertility. And so they then play on that and use anonymity to suggest that they are the appropriate person to seek help from and that they can help you without people finding out about this.
1: Can we talk a bit about kind of if the men do seek help or even if they, as you said, um, try things at home, what that kind of would have been like? Like take us in, I suppose, to the patient's room. Were women involved there? Um, You know, we have a lot of these kind of tropes and assumptions about women being the caregivers, being the nurses. Was that still true for these sorts of medical concerns?
0: Yes, I think it was. And you do find venereal disease uh, advertisements for treatments that talk about nurses. Um, and I've worked a bit on kind of the space and place of medical treatment. And you you sometimes see there that surgeons um, employ a nurse to guard over their patient, particularly if they're uh, an unruly patient. But I think women's roles in the sick room change over the life cycle and are not necessarily as straightforward in these kinds of complaints. Um, And you can see the kind of construction of of ways of negotiating access. So if we look at recipe books, for example, um, there are lots of remedies in those for reproductive conditions. But you can see how women might shift them or change them if they need to be used on a man. So Jane Jackson has a collection um, and her book contains quite a few remedies for infertility, including topical ointments. Um, And the first one is a a lovely combination of the brains of a crane, gander's grease and fox grease um, that you take out when you want to have sex with your wife. And it says, um, at the time thou would have knowledge, anoint therewith thy yard and she shall conceive. So although this is nominally Jane Jackson's recipe book, um, and the remedy might potentially have been made by a woman, it's the man who anoints himself. And interestingly, there are two remedies um, fairly similar in their instructions. And both of them talk about healing female infertility, but they're both applied to the male body. And so I think what potentially is going on here is an acknowledgement that men also have problems with their potency and fertility, but if we talk about it as a woman's problem, we can apply a remedy to the male body that might help, might improve potency, might improve their fertility. But the man can think about it as a, a woman's um, remedy, a remedy for the woman's body. So you've got that kind of negotiation going on. And then you also see that women aren't always given free access um, to male bodies. So Daniel Turner, who's a, a surgeon and a physician, um recounts lots of stories of of syphilis. And one of them is a young man who's brought to him by his mother. And the mother has been made aware of the boy's venereal disease because a maid takes his foul shirt to her and shows her and she then brings her son to Turner for a diagnosis. So she's there. She clearly knows it's venereal disease. She knows what's going on. But she's asked to step outside of the room while Turner examines the youth's penis. So she knows what's happening, but she doesn't have access to her son's um, body. Her kind of medical gaze is is blocked in that scenario. So women are nurses, and they are still central to the sick room. And they're particularly key as nurses for younger children. But I think as you move through the life cycle, women potentially become less prominent in these types of conditions. And men might instead rely on their friends a little bit more Um, so there's kind of a suggestion of a a homosocial um patient space when it comes to these conditions
1: Hmm. which is really interesting so thank you for illuminating that for us you mentioned um the idea of an unruly patient that's a really evocative term what does that mean in this context so
0: I think quite a few patients are unruly in the early modern world, both urinary patients and others, both men and women. Um, patients in, in this era are very well versed in humoral medicine and they're able to make choices about the kind of care they receive. Um, healers are essentially competing in a medical marketplace. And so patients abandon healers who have Um, a diagnosis that they don't like, or offer treatments that they think aren't working, they will just fire them or leave and go and find help elsewhere. And in part, this is because the authority of medical practitioners over their patients is quite tenuous, and it's negotiated throughout the medical encounter. But then you also see added layers of unruly behaviour. So once these medical practitioners manage to attract clients, they've coached them in, they've said they'll be discreet, they managed to get them through the door. They then have all these frustrations with how they behave. Um, So Felix Wirt's surgical treatise um, of 1658 complains that patients are like children, still desiring things which are offensive and hurtful. And in particular, those things are alcohol, food and sexual activity, which should all be moderated during treatment. And you see this, um, particularly with genitourinary conditions, there's a need to avoid sexual activity. Um, Alexander Reed, for example, says that hernia patients need to forbear laughter and venery during their treatment. And it's clear that patients don't always follow that advice. So there's a case recorded um, by Matthias Gottfried Perman from 1694 where a 28 year old draper is being treated for a wa- watery swelling in his penis. So he has an incision made, the water is released, um, the swelling goes down, and then um, Herman frustratingly writes that the draper made use of his young wife as formerly whereupon the swelling returned. And this, again, is framed as a very bad choice on the patient's part. Um, It leads to repeated treatments, and unfortunately, in this case, excessive pain, insomnia, and eventual death. But it's framed as though... um, it's a lapse in judgment. He couldn't He couldn't stop um, eating or drinking or, or engaging in sexual activity. And that comes up over and over again. And it links with these ideas of self-control. So these men put their recovery at risk by a failure to demonstrate self-control over their bodies. But again, there's a difference in how medical writers write about these things and how men might have perceived it. So Hannah Newton's done some really fantastic work on notions of recovery and shown that um, Men in particular use the resumption of eating and sexual activity as a way to show their recovery. It's a part of a recovery narrative. And so um, men might eat voluptuous meats and uh, things that are aphrodisiac in nature to promote their lusts and show that they are now fit and healthy. So this might be that men who are seen as unruly are just trying to kind of assert some sense of control over their body and regain authority over the treatment plan. But there's a difference in how that's viewed by medical writers um, and how it's potentially perceived as patients. And of course, we only have the medical writers
1: side to go on in these texts. Hmm. But still painting a very interesting story. Is there anything you found um, doing this research, putting this book together that you think is interesting to think about in terms of similarities between what you've told us in this time period of early modern England and men's sexual health today?
0: Yeah, I really do think there are lots of intriguing threads that link men of the past and today. Um, In fact, one of the reasons I was interested in this topic was right at the moment where I was starting to to see this gap in the historical literature um, in the kind of early 2010s, There were lots of charity campaigns and uh, information campaigns about men not seeking medical care and not talking about issues like impotence, um, infertility, and in particular, at that point, prostate cancer. Um, And so I think what's interesting is the men in the past seem to be a little bit more open in some ways, particularly when talking to friends and family. They ask for remedies. They ask for medical advice. They ask for referrals to medical practitioners. And now, as we come into the 2020s, we're starting to see men shift in the same way. Men are becoming more open. Well, I hope they are anyway. Um, And you have documentaries. There was a documentary on the BBC a couple of years ago about two young brothers. um, I say young. They're young to me. They're in their 20s and um, talking about their infertility. Um, and the potential impact it would have on them and I think that marked quite a notable shift you know having a documentary that's quite open about these kind of conditions means I think it is becoming more acceptable for men to talk about sexual health more openly and reproductive health so they're kind of moving in line with 17th and 18th century men and I think in part that's because the underlying concerns that frame these discussions haven't really changed at all. If you go to the NHS website today, it's got a dedicated section for men's health, um, and men there are directed towards whole series of questions. Um, They're quite interestingly phrased. So how can I improve my chances of becoming a dad? Why is my penis smelly and sore? What is this lump on my penis? And what should my testicles look and feel like? Um, There's lots of others, but those are the kind of ones at the top. And you can see there the top one, how can I improve my chances of becoming a dad is about fertility. And so that underlying thread of the importance of fertility to men's lives has remained the 17th century to today Um, and it still continues to underpin all of these discussions about sexual health problems and then I also think there's a quite an intriguing link in terms of who help should be sought from so early modern medical texts complain about irregular healers and quacks um, the unlicensed practitioner selling potentially dubious wares and today we have the internet which aptly kind of stands in place of an early modern charlatan you can look up information potentially not always accurate information. You can try remedies that are promoted on social media before you speak to a doctor. So there's that still that same connection about who should you be talking to, where is appropriate help
1: um, and appropriate information sought from. Mm, some very interesting links indeed. Thank you for highlighting them for us. Um, I do have a final question, though maybe not quite about the book, if you'll allow it. Uh, This book is obviously done. It's out in the world. Is there anything, therefore, that you might be working on now or looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to preview or highlight? So I've actually
0: um, gone back to women's bodies, Uh, having spent 10 years working on men's bodies. I've gone back to women's reproductive health, and I've been working on miscarriage and experiences of miscarriage in the 17th and 18th centuries and in part that was prompted during lockdown when we couldn't access the archives i had lots of recipe books um, on my machine so i went back through them um, and I'd been collecting little bits and pieces over that 10 years to do with miscarriage. So I've, I've recently published two articles on that, but I'm working it up into a bigger project, hopefully a book, but we'll see how it goes. And um, so at the minute, I'm thinking about how weather and travel and other kind of everyday experiences were implicated in pregnancy loss. And I'm also trying to think through um, the ways in which pregnancy loss align to infertility. And then um, outside of that, I'm also writing an article with Sarah Fox at Edge Hill University about preparation for birth in the 18th century. So we found some really intriguing remedies. Um, that you take about six weeks before you expect your labor to start. So we're thinking about the notion of felt maternity in late pregnancy and how those remedies reveal kind of multi-layered experiences of time in pregnancy. So
1: yeah, I've really gone back to women's bodies for a little bit. Some very intriguing questions though. So thank you so much for um, giving us that preview. And if the project does become a book, uh, please let us know. We'll have you back. Uh, But in the meantime, of course. Listeners can read the book we've been discussing, Men's Sexual Health in Early Modern England, published by Amsterdam University Press. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.